stuff, isn't it? So like if you're you to come in and kind of feel awkward and like step church. over like eight other people. It's like church. <laughs> yeah, that's that's appropriate for what we're talking about. Um, okay. So those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid. I'm a campus minister for this thing called RUF, Reform University Fellowship. It's a campus ministry to New Mexico State. Um, let me tell you a little bit about RUF for those of you familiar and unfamiliar. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the generally happy optimist and the generally pessimistic and cynical man or woman. For the student who hand-stitched her costume, covered her face in face paint, and stayed in character all Halloween weekend. <laughs> There's some of you out there. I know. And the student who creatively dressed up as himself. Both of you are welcome here, okay? Even though each of you resents the other. Um, <laughs> secretly, or not so secretly. Our if exists finally for those who think church is full of weekend spiritual warriors. And those who think the church is full of Jesus, healing the sick and the sore. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. Um, we're glad that you're here. I hope that you feel welcome. If you've been here before, introduce yourself to someone new. Not right now, after. Um, and then if you're new, it's harder to be new. Maybe just try to talk to a few folks. Um, and know that we love you, um, even when we're not talking to you right this second. Okay. So, uh, some announcements. We've done some of them probably already, but do we have the sign-up? Oh, cool. Okay, so as Jen's getting the sign-up, um, let me tell you, if you want to get a little bit more involved in RUF, uh, a good way to do that is to uh, sign up for the sign-up. If you've done this already, don't do it again, please. Spare us, okay? But if you, um, if you haven't joined, maybe think about joining the Facebook group at MSCRUF. Um, if you're new, we'd love to get your email so that we don't spam you to death, but so that we can actually invite you to things. And you can politely ignore us if you want to, that's fine. Um, or ask to be off of it, that's fine too. Uh, as usual, if you're interested in going a little deeper into RUF, uh, I'd suggest a Bible study, a small group. There are plenty. If you need recommendations, come talk to me. I'm more than happy to talk to you about that and your schedule. Um, it's a great way to get to know people and be known by people. It's also a great way to get to know and be known by Jesus. Okay, so that's what we believe in. That's what we're trying to do um, here as well as in those things. And, or maybe just come to a lunch. It's a little bit um, also a good opportunity to hang out. That's pretty good. Okay, so last thing. Okay, I wanted to mention also that... Um, Due to our wonderful intern, Jen, for the very first time ever, for the last few weeks, probably some of you know this, that we have our sermons online. Um, so, yes, Jen. I can't work a recorder, which is apparently extremely easy for even substitutes, but <laughs> here I am. Uh, I have enough trouble with the podium, so do you want me to really fiddle with something else? Come on, guys. I'm just a man. Just a man, okay? With limitations. Um, but we don't do this for my own glory, okay? We're not, like, recording these things so I can sit there to posterity and be forever in the interweb and internet, okay? That's not what I'm hoping for. Um, actually, we're hoping some people would ask to re-listen to some things and maybe also uh, to share things with a friend who didn't get to make it here. So that's the hope that you use it for that. Um, just by the way, the reason that I'm not super psyched about it is I don't 
Have you ever had the experience of like listening to your own voice? Yes. Like it sounds dead sexy coming out. You know, you're like, ooh. It's like a purr, you know, like, watch out. But then you hear it on like the, the recording, like, wow, what, where's the nasal twang coming from? Like, oh, whoa, easy. So um, that's part of the reason I was reluctant. But technology also hindered me. So thank you, Jen, again. And um, let's move on. Do you want to know where it is? Oh, yeah, nmsu.ruf.org. Okay. So that's our website. It's on this little bad boy at the bottom. Okay. So you can take a look there, too. Okay. And I was with the Facebook as well. Okay. So this semester, in large group, what we're doing here, uh, what we're gathered to do, We've been looking at the story behind two people in the Bible, Jonah and Elijah. Uh, and I'm calling this, this study Tracing the Heart of God, because when we look at these two people, the reason we're looking at these two people is to really look at God. First, we looked at Jonah's story in the book of Jonah, shocking. And then we looked at, we're now looking at part two, the story of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. Um, we're spending some time with Jonah and Elijah because they are people like us, Okay. Uh, have, they have some great moments, and they have some not-so-great moments, okay? And it's important to keep that in mind. Now, they also have some things that they do that we can't do, and we'll talk about that later, um, like sending the fire down. Anyway, so as we read this passage, we'll get the gist of it. Um, but um, we're spending some time also so that we can get a front-row seat to see the heart of God at work. That's what we're getting to do this semester. It's a great honor and privilege, and that's what's wonderful about opening up the Bible and reading it and talking about it. So I hope you get excited about that. Um, so, again, continuing our discussion of Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18. Okay, this is like a natural sequel to last week. In fact, I had to kind of cut it in half. I mean, imagine doing this. I mean, everyone thought last week was like a ton of verses. They were like, oh, you know, like he read forever. But um, actually, the, the natural episode is this plus last week. And I cut it in half a little bit uh, for the sake of time. Imagine me preaching on more than that. It might have taken like several hours. It would have been a sit-in, occupying Mexico State. <laughs> so, <laughs> with me talking the entire time. Maybe we can make some chants. You know, like, Elijah, fail. Uh, <laughs> okay. Anyway. So... Um, so there's this, basically the contest happened like this. There were the Baal, like the 450 Baal prophets and the god Baal stacked against the one real god and his one prophet, Elijah. Okay? So that was, that was the competition. That was the setup. Okay? And a quick recap for those of you who weren't here, those of you who are like me to easily forget. Um, let's do a little quick recap to talk about what happened last week and what happened in the first, oh, you know, 20 or so verses. Um, Elijah calls all Israel to test and see who's God. Is it the Lord God or is it Baal? Okay, that's what he's doing. And um, they're gonna, the, the important part of this is that it's determining why there's this three-year drought that's going on in Israel at the time. Um, it's a long time for a drought, by the way. Um, and they're asking who will bring the rain to end the drought. And finally, really, they're saying who's worthy of Israel, of our, of our worship? Is it Baal or is it the Lord? Okay, that's what we're, we're kind of getting at, okay? So, um, the contest consists of two altars, each with a bull on top of it. Each side prays, uh, or does whatever, to get their God to show up. Uh, to bring fire to the offering and to the altar. That's, when, that's the appearance of God as fire to the altar and to the offering. 
And um, yes, Elijah and Baal are, are asking for a miracle. They're asking for a miracle for God to show up in a miraculous way. And we saw last week in 1 Kings 18, 20-29, 20 uh, Baal fails to bring the miracle. Doesn't bring the fire, doesn't bring the rain, doesn't bring anything. Just kind of quiet. And Elijah says, what are you doing? Go to the bathroom, Baal? Come on, buddy. Um, and his, no matter what his prophets do, the all-day praying and dancing and shouting and cutting, all of this stuff doesn't bring Baal to bear. No one answered. No one said a thing. That's where we left off. I mean, sequel time, right? Not like a Hollywood sequel. They just sort of chop up. Like, they make up like, oh, the guy really didn't die, and now we have to fight him again. This is actually, like, right in the middle of the action, okay? And so we're going to pick it up. Uh, this brings us to the present. Here we're going to see how the Lord God responds to Elijah's request, to Elijah's prayer. And here's the question that should be ringing in your ears. Will the real God show up? Will the real God show up? With that question in mind, turn in your Bibles if you have one to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you don't, that's fine. We provide a green sheet inside, right-hand side, I think. You're going to find some text for you. Um, we're going to 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 30 through 40. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture? If you're standing and looking through your Bible still trying to find a passage, it's between 2 Samuel and 2 Kings. Somewhere in the Old Testament, right about there. Okay? And uh, we're reading out the English Standard Version translation. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars of water with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And then he said, And then they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Friends, the heavens earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Would you pray with me? Father, um, here we are, waiting for you to show up. I pray, Father, that you would faithfully attend that. That, Lord, you would show up. Something like this contest is going on right now in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would prove true. That you would move in your word. That you would impress upon our hearts. That you would use somewhat stressful circumstances. 
somewhat boring circumstances, somewhat um, everyday circumstances perhaps in our lives, and that you would impress your word upon our hearts and change us, uh, move our hands and our feet and our minds and our hearts, and help us to be different, help us to be more like you. That's our prayer. Bind our hearts to what's good and true and beautiful. In your son's name, amen. You can be seated. Thanks. So, like, the past few weeks, I've had a few nights where I just haven't been able to sleep at all. Like, very little. Okay? Um, for me, there are, like, few things worse than not being able to sleep. Like, it kills me. I'm sure there are a lot of things worse, and I live in the suburbs, and I'm fine. But, like, it bothers me a lot. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and really, I'm not talking about, like, a few minutes, like, a half an hour of tossing, getting the pillow right, getting the comforter talked appropriately. Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about hours and hours of not being able to sleep. And you can relate to this experience, hopefully. I mean, most of you. I mean, sometimes for some of you, maybe it's a regular experience. Maybe you're an insomniac. You don't sleep well at all most of the time. Maybe you don't need a lot of sleep. Um, and at the very least, you can relate to it in winter break when your schedule gets completely nocturnal and you become a raccoon. And basically, <laughs> that becomes day and day becomes night, and all of a sudden you can't go to sleep when you want to go to sleep at all anyway. So... At least, at the very least, you're there um, with me in that. And here's how it works for me. There I am. The lights are turned off. The house is quiet. And I'm tired. But I can't sleep. <laughs> My mind is racing. And I go to the most lonely and anxious and frustrating places that I can possibly go. I feel sick in these places, don't you? Sick about how tired I am. Sick about how tired I'm going to be tomorrow. Sick about myself. And just plain sick. If you're anything like me, when you get to the space of exhaustion without relief, when you can't sleep and you feel sick, you start questioning everything. Am I in the right major? Does she really like me? Is he even my friend? In these tired times of loneliness and self-content, I reach out to God. Like many of you, I pray. And mostly I pray that it would end. And they're mostly half-finished, feeble prayers between tossings and turnings that I can only manage like a sentence or two, right? And my praying fire grows dimmer and dimmer as God seems like he doesn't show up longer and longer and longer. And then I can only really manage a sentence. And I stay awake, and I feel so lonely. And in those pre-dawn moments, I worry. Here's what I worry about. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor, and I have a special sort of kind of worry. I worry that God won't show up. If he doesn't show up here, how's he going to show up there? Where is he? What's he up to? And of course, the dawn always comes. The light shines through the windows, and I always feel better. Even if I didn't sleep very well, I feel better. Even if I'm physically sick. But for many of us here, the feelings of loneliness and doubts about God are not just a nighttime reality. Maybe it's just a feeling of boredom or a fear of being bored. Or maybe it's this voice inside your head that loudly, kind of harshly whispers, like it's a library or something, you are so unlovely. You're so unlovely. Or maybe, just maybe, it's, it's looking for something or waiting for something that never quite comes about the way you want it to come about. Right? It's like feeling like you're so excited to go home that you go home and home isn't home. Or what home should be, at least. 
And I think what's interesting about this feeling is that, um, that we've all sort of experienced in one way or another, I hope, is that um, it's kind of become a cultural moment we've been stuck in for a while. Um, now, we don't talk about this a lot, but we talk about it in literature a lot, and we talk a lot about it in art. Maybe it's in a song, maybe it's in a painting, but it's also in books and in our plays. And it's portrayed beautifully in one particular play called Waiting for Godot. Okay? By Samuel Beckett. Waiting for Godot. Yes, I'm going French, and I'm never coming back. Okay? <laughs> We're going left side of, this, of, the, of the banks, and I'm not returning to the right side. Um, so, anyway. I'm going to get my baguette later. Um, Waiting for Godot is a play where two men, um, very common names, Estragon and Vladimir, are waiting for someone named Godot. Okay? In the midst of like fierce boredom, loneliness, self-contempt, they contemplate suicide and leaving the place where Godot told them to wait for him. Okay? But they don't kill themselves, they don't leave, because they know that when Godot comes, he'll save them. That's their words. Godot will save us. Beckett's brilliant play captures the human condition wonderfully. We're waiting for God to show up. We're waiting for God to heal us. We're waiting for God to save us. Wherever we are. But there's this doubt that he won't show up where he says he will, in our prayers or in church, for instance. But we don't dare leave the spot where we're waiting, whether Christian or not. Because deep down inside we know there's no other hope. There's no other hope. God is our only hope. He's life. He's love. He's healing. He's a dawn that never ends. This section of 1 Kings, buried in the depths of narrative in the Old Testament. This section of 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 30 through 40, takes our doubts that we're afraid to talk about. Takes our fears that we're suppressing takes our spiritual loneliness and takes it head on. Okay? And you know what it says? It offers a promise proved by history. God will show up. God will show up. He will show up against all odds in the worst of times and in the least likely of places. That's the promise that's been proven by history in this passage. 1 Kings 18, verses 30 through 40 demonstrates clearly this point. God shows up where you least expect him to. God shows up where you least expect him to. And he shows up by our prayers and for his worship. God shows up where you least expect him to, and he shows up by our prayers and for his worship. All right. This passage breaks down into three little scenes that show how, where, and why God shows up. So we're going to see how, where, and why God shows up in this passage. And I hope that you can all relate to it and why we need to hear it. In verses 30 through 32, we see how God shows up by rebuilding an altar of all things. And then in verses 33 through 39, we see where God shows up in our prayers and in our, in our worship. And in verse 40, we see why God shows up to rescue his people at all costs. To rescue his people at all costs. So verse 30 through 32, how God shows up. Verses 33 through 39 are where God shows up. And verse 40 is why God shows up. Okay. So that's our little outline. 
We're going to stick to it. But I'm reversing it this time. <gasps> Shocking. I know. I know, people. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, and here's why. We're going to do the last verse first. We're going to begin with verse 40. Because, you know, I like to eat my vegetables before my meat. Um, no, because we're going, to, we're going to discuss why God shows up. Because of this. Because um, I'd like to tackle the toughest verse of the of passage first or last. So I am actually eating my vegetables before my meat. And I'd like to also create a nice bridge between last week and this week. Uh, and don't worry for those of you who weren't here last week. We're going to cover a little bit of that territory again. Not very long for those of you who were there last week. Um, so we're going to try to create a bridge between the two. We're going to look at Israel and the Baal prophets, but briefly. Um, so let's look at verse 40. Let's just get to it, okay? Right here, right now. I'm going to read it for you again. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is why God shows up. To rescue his people at all costs. But my guess is the costs... <coughs> of this verse bother us an awful lot. In fact, my temptation was just to like skip over the verse because it would be a lot easier. right? Oh yeah, sure, sure, that's fine. We'll just dust it over. Um, let someone else handle that, like Sunday school or something. Um, but, I mean, this is t- tough to swallow. It's tough to stomach. We live in a land of freedom, of religious expression. It's hard to imagine punishing a priest like we'd punish a serial killer. With execution. That's really hard to imagine. It's hard to stomach. But let me give you a few explanations of verse 40, okay, briefly. Okay, first, first of all, I want you to understand that verse 40 is exactly why the whole be more like Elijah thing breaks down. Okay, <laughs> I hope you see this. When you read your Bible or hear it taught, you can't always look at seemingly good characters and try to imitate their actions. Okay, there, look, there's nothing wrong to be, like, to pray to be more like Elijah, right? There's nothing wrong with sort of saying, oh, I want to be... Uh, more bold like him. But clearly there's something wrong with killing people from other religions in contemporary America. Okay? So please don't be more like Elijah in that respect. Um, Look, just like we don't have a showdown with altars and bulls and fire every time someone spiritually challenges us, okay, just like that, we also don't kill people when we lose religious art, when they lose religious... Hold on, let me try again. Okay. When they lose religious arguments, we don't kill them. Okay? Just like we don't set up a spiritual showdown. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament sense. He God's very words came to him, and God told him to do these things. Okay? You and I are not like that. We don't have the word of the Lord come to us like it came to Elijah. So we're not to imitate everything Elijah does because Oh, shocker, we're not Elijah, okay? And that's where the whole be like Elijah thing breaks down. Second, Elijah's not ordering the people of Israel to kill the prophets because he's really, really angry. Or like he's got a sort of revenge on his mind. That's not the motivation at all. He's following the historical oath, the covenant that the people of Israel all took, and he took along with them, to the Lord God. And there and then they promised to put the people who champion other religions in Israel to death. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 13, if you want to read more about it, okay, in the Old Testament. And as I said last week, we didn't take that oath, that covenant. We didn't pledge to do those things. Okay? We're not Israel in that sense. 
And so we're not bound to kill prophets and priests of other religions. I think this is probably pretty obvious, but I want to explain why. Okay? It's important. In fact, the Christian covenant, that is the New Testament, by the way. Testament just means covenant. The New Covenant really is actually about Christians pledging to love and to pray for people from other religions. Not to kill them. Okay? And so, I'm actually going to keep going. I know you're sort of like, well, you successfully dodged that bullet, but I'm going to keep going. Because I think some of you are frustrated still. Why would God have ever asked his people to kill prophets of other religions to begin with? Why do you even do that? I know that it doesn't apply for us today, Sid. I get that whole thing about spiritual armor, not real armor in Ephesians. But why would he ever ask us to do that? Why would he ever ask people before us to do that? This is a hard question. Okay? I'm going to tackle it. Okay? Commentator Dale Ralph Davis helps us to ask a question of ourselves before we ask the question of God. Here's what he says. The problem is not with Elijah or the Old Testament, but with us. We have little horror of the cancer of sin. God uses surgery, not breath mints, on cancer. Okay? God uses surgery, not breath mints, on the horror of cancer. The problem is not God's lack of refinement, that he's not up with the times. The problem is our lack of sanctification, that is holiness. Okay, that's harsh. Okay? But I want you to ask that question, because basically, Davis is saying sin, that is the selfishness that hurts everyone, including ourselves. Sin must be removed, not covered over. Okay? You can't just breathe sin. Okay? You've got to scrub it clean. But let me give you a metaphor that might help us even further explain the drastic meta- measures. Everyone knows I'm a sucker for a metaphor. But here we go. It starts with philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. He defines sin as building your identity, who you are, on anything other than God. He defines sin as building your identity, that is who you are, on anything other than God. That's the start of sin. And this is what we talked about last week, right? Idolatry. Idolatry is building who you are on something other than God. And it's the heart of sin, and both idolatry and sin lead to a sickness unto death. It's a sickness unto death for us and for the people around us. This desperation makes us sick like a kind of addiction. Okay? Sin is a kind of addiction that we look to achievements or to people other than God for what they promise to offer, but they can never actually deliver. This desperation makes us sick, sick enough to hurt ourselves and sick enough to hurt other people in order to get what we want. That's the nature of idolatry. That's the nature of the addiction of sin. Okay? So if we see sin as a drug, we can think of the Baal prophets as drug dealers. Okay? Ancient drug dealers. Here's where my metaphor comes in. Okay? So we see in verses 39 and 40 that even when the junkies of Israel fall on their faces and proclaim that, that God is Lord, okay? even then, the dealers of Baal do not. Okay? They don't fall on their faces. They don't proclaim that the Lord is God. Okay? So God calls Elijah to take desperate measures and get rid of the drug dealers on the corners of Israel at all costs. Okay? Even if that means killing them, because the government that's working right then and there under King Ahab and a queen named Jezebel, wasn't exactly doing much about the drug problem. Okay? In fact, he was encouraging people to push drugs in every corner, the bail drug in every corner. Okay? So the junkies must get rid of the dealers in order to get clean. That is holy. Okay? 
That's all I got. <laughs> so, so here we are, okay? I get it. This is a hard, I've done the best I can to explain a hard verse, okay? I took my best shot. Those were desperate times and some that required desperate measures, okay? This side of Jesus' victory over sin, we could be thankful for the Spirit's empowerment of us over temptation, which the junkies of Israel clearly didn't have, okay? And we can, by that Spirit's power, love those who spiritually disagree with us, okay? That's the promise that we have here and now versus then and there, okay? So hopefully that, I know that didn't clear up all of your problems that happened in the brook of Kishon, but hopefully you've got to start to think about through yourself, through them, and through the whole process. Okay. So now that I've died on that hill, okay, thoroughly, let's turn back to the beginning of our passage to see where, see how God shows up. Okay, so we've looked at why God shows up to rescue the junkies of Israel from the dealers of Baal. But now we're going to look at how he shows up in verses 30 through 32. So basically, Elijah says, come on over, everybody. Come to the altar. Um, and then he rebuilds the altar to the Lord God. And you have to understand this, that there was an altar to the Lord God at Mount Carmel. Okay, But the, the altar there had been destroyed by Baal prophets and Baal worshippers. Okay, so it had been like literally taken brick by brick off and strewn everywhere. <clears throat> That's what happened. And a quick scan of verses 30 through 32 make us all want to snore. Some of us are snoring right now. Um, look, it's a, it's a building report, right? Okay, so he stacks some stones. Okay, so he digs a trench for water. Awesome. Where are we going, Drew? Come on, Sid. Help us out. Here's what it looks like. But verse 31, if you notice, tells this altar is a symbolic value. It's beyond a few old rocks. Let's read it together. Elijah took the 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Okay? This altar represents all 12 of the tribes of Israel. All the people of God and all of the tribes torn from each other spiritually by idolatry, chasing another God. Okay? Just like the rocks were torn from each other literally by idolatry and idolaters. Does that make sense? So that's the parallel that our author is drawing. The altar represents Israel. And so it also represents us, the people of God, now. All of us are torn up and torn apart by each other's idolatries. How many of us have felt left behind by a friend's ambition to be just a little bit cooler than we are? How many of us have felt trampled under a friend's ambition to be just a little smarter than we are? How many of us have left, have left behind and trampled our friends in the name of something else? <coughs> And we were like so many stones thrown down and scattered into loneliness, just like that altar. But into this hurtful mess enters Jesus. Jesus, through beautiful symbolism in this passage, just look at the original Hebrew of verse 30, okay? I know you can't do that necessarily. But the original verse, Hebrew of verse 30 says this, And he, that is Elijah, repaired, or actually literally healed, the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So the word for repaired is dalah, and dalah, or sorry, defa, and defa means healed, healed, okay? So what? Why is that important? Because God, through Elijah, is beginning 
the work of healing his people, of putting us back together, of making us whole, individually and together, corporately, as a collective. In the words of verse 37, he's turning our hearts back to him. That's what's going on in his altar building. And Elijah's work is really only finished by Jesus Christ. Do we see that? The picture in last week's, chat, in last week's passage of verse 20 is really, really profound. Okay? This is, captures what, Israel, what idolatry does to us inside and out. Okay? The Baal prophets are cutting themselves and cutting each other in the pursuit to belong and to be a success, and blood is gushing out from them. And there we are. And here we are. But Jesus heals our cuts. Jesus binds up what is broken. He fully and firmly repairs God's people. That is, anyone who believes in him. But how? How does he do this? This is the most revolutionary part of the gospel message. The mortar of Christ's work with God's living stones is Christ's blood. Christ's blood brings us back together. It seals us. It heals our wounds. Isaiah 53, verse 5, predicts the self-sacrifice of Christ beautifully. He was wounded for our sins, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But upon him was the chastisement, that is, the discipline that brought us peace. And this is the most important part. With his stripes, we are healed. With his wounds, we're healed. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus is wounded. Whiplashes, nails, thorny crowns, spear. And worst of all, the abandonment from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of these were wounds that heal our wounded hearts. Do we get that? Those of us who are wounded by sex or violence or neglect or ambition, whether it's our own or other people's, all of us are healed by faith in Christ's wounds. Finally, let's reach the final heart of the passage, the very marrow of it, okay? Verses 33 through 39. And these verses we see where God shows up. He shows up at a waterlogged altar with a fire. And then in a simple prayer with glory. Look at verses 33 through 35 with me. There we have Elijah building an altar. And he wants to prove us that God can actually show up no matter what. No matter where we are, no matter what's going on. So what does he do? He orders 12 things of water, 12 jars of water to be poured upon the altar. And we all know that incredibly soggy, wet, uh, standing water cannot catch fire. Right? So this has to be miraculous. This has to prove us that God can show up no matter where and when. And so we read in verse 38, The fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the burnt offering, the bull, and the wood and the stones of the altar, and the dust around the altar, and even licked up the water in the trenches around the altar. The Lord God comes in fire and answers the challenge to show up. And he shows up in our lives, because every time God shows up, this promises, God says, I exist, I'm with my people, I'm present to save. Do we get how beautiful this is? Contrast this with the silence of Baal. Baal doesn't exist. He can't save. Okay? But let's really not miss a simple application here. Some of you are like, okay, Mount Carmel, altar, 12 stones, 
somewhere. I don't really even know where Mount Carmel is, maybe between Phoenicia and Israel, if I'm a real big ancient Near East map fan. Um, look, let's not miss a simple application here. The altar represents the people of God, and God shows up where his people are gathered. Okay? God promised to show up with power at unbelievable times and places. He promised to show up in church where his people are gathered. Even now, right here, right now, Tuesday night, he promised to show up, even when you're bored. Even when I'm distracted. Even then, on Sunday morning, he promises to show up. And he does. And let's not miss how amazing it is that God shows up in a place like church. Okay? Statistically, most college students are betting that God doesn't show up in church. Okay? They're saying that's not where he goes. That's not where life and light and holiness and beauty happen. Statistically, they don't think it happens on Sunday morning. Okay? That's, where, that's the culture we live in. And I think this is actually relatively reasonable. It's because, as if the altar of church didn't feel crazy enough, some sort of glued together assortment of random people, that didn't feel like weird enough. All of a sudden, the people of the church, the actual stones themselves, feel like 12 jugs of water being poured upon the church. And all of a sudden, God's supposed to show up and burn brightly there? I mean, is God really going to make an appearance among people so different than me? Oh, you know, the old ladies who wear tacky sweaters without irony? And the balding, overweight men who breathe so heavy I can't concentrate? Or the hyperactive kids with sticky hands? Is God really going to show up among a group of people that sin so badly? The women and the men and the children who are so unfriendly sometimes? They feel so judgmental when I walk in late or when I'm not all put together in my Sunday finest. And then he's going to show up where gossip and feuds are wrapped up in some holy wrapping paper as a prayer request. Are you kidding me? That's where he shows up? But what does this passage tell us? God shows up exactly there. Exactly where there's so much boredom and so much idolatry and so much loneliness and so much tiredness. He shows up there. He shows up here. He's showing up right now. An altar barely glued together and soaked with water cannot prevent the Lord of the universe from lighting his people full of life and full of joy and full of holiness. But it's not just the building and the people that catch the spark and make God's presence burn. That's not the whole story. According to this passage, there is prayer and there is worship that light that spark. Prayer on the front end of God's presence, and then also worship on the back end. The prayer of Elijah is simple and short and sincere. I mean, just look at verses 36 through 37. I won't read them again. It's a very short prayer. Okay? Yes, God shows up because Elijah prays, but the simple way that Elijah prays tells us something very important. That the focus of our prayers is on God and His presence and not on us and our prayers. Does that make sense to everybody? As opposed, look at, the, look at the opposition that's being cast in this passage. You've got the Baal prophets all day long they're holy. All day long they're pious. They're cutting themselves. They're, um, they're full of elaborate ritual. They're even self-sacrificially, energetically pious. But our earlier reading in Matthew that you guys heard... Chapter 6 tells us 
Well, God doesn't answer prayers because they are showy public spectacles. God doesn't answer prayers because they are long and carefully crafted, and you absolutely 100% mean every single word that you say. That's not why he answers prayers. You know why he answers prayers? It says it in Matthew chapter 6, because your father knows what you want before you ask for it. Do you get that you don't have to butter up God? You don't have to manipulate him? You don't have to prove that you're worthy enough to get some sort of scrap of attention or favor? Unlike everyone else in this freaking world. If you believe in Jesus, he is praying at the right hand of the Father even as we speak. If you believe in Jesus, his spirit is inside you groaning even as you listen to this semi-boring message. If you believe in Jesus, you are God's son or daughter, and he is promised to provide every single possible need that you can't even think of. Because he delights in you. He delights in you as he delights in his son Jesus. That's the promise of Christianity. And it affects the very way that we pray. Prayer should feel like relief, not exhaustion. It should feel like you're finally resting in a good God who gives his children the best. I just love the way that Dale Ralph Davis, commentator again, puts it. God will begin to do things. He says, look, prayer shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be exhausting. We shouldn't think God will only begin to do things if we get a flurry of religious activity together going, and then God will surely work only if we plug in your thing of choice, only if we spend longer personal devotions, only if we spend more time in private prayer, only if we form a peer accountability group, only if we do early morning men's pancake breakfasts, only if we add a spring Bible retreat, only if we dim the lights in the sanctuary to create ambiance. Okay? He's saying most of these things are not illegitimate in and of themselves, but they're done for illegitimate reasons. They're gimmicks to manipulate, impress, and to stir up God. That's why we do some of those things. And God is not an idol. He's not a vending machine that you press a few buttons and it gets your candy bar. God isn't even like your mom. Who you have to whine and press and so you can finally go to Six Flags if you always wanted to when you were four. <laughs> I'm done almost, okay? Here's the deal. In our raw spiritual moments, those moments of half-finished prayers and loneliness and self-hatred, in these moments when we're asking, honestly, will God show up? Will he show up? This is what our passage points to. A band-aided people, a waterlogged altar, and a simple prayer of faith. And then it points to the altar of the cross of Jesus Christ and says, there God shows up. And from there, he's healing us. And there God promised once and for all to light us full of light and life. So let me talk to you again about those sleepless moments that I have, waking and dreaming. Or trying to dream, I should say. When it feels like the dark and the, and the night are all there is and God feels so absent. There are words that, I, that come to my mind, that come to my mind even right now, that have come to my mind for a couple of weeks now, and they're from an old man of faith in a book called Godric. And he says this, and it's very profound, but it's just basically what this passage is saying. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was 
sat next to life could scarcely fill a cup. Let me say it again. What's lost is nothing to what's found, and all the death that ever was when sat next to life could scarcely fill a cup. Here's what he's saying. The dark is not all there is. The dark is not all there is. And so we don't have to pretend like it doesn't exist. Friends, the dark scarcely fills a cup when set next to light and all its grandeur. That's what this promise is saying. God shows up. Even when we don't think he can. God shows up. Would you pray with me? Father, um, you've got to press and seal this. <laughs> There's a lot of hard things that this, this passage is about. Uh, I'm sure some of us are still stuck in verse 40. Um, I pray, Father, that you would teach us about the fact that, frankly, um, your last word is light in life, and that you heal what's broken, and that in the midst of looking at our sin, the center stage belongs to you, Jesus. The spotlight belongs to you and what you're doing and how you do it. Um, and Father, I just pray that you would help us um, to know that truth intimately, and that you'd move in a room with a rattling light and people who are not like us. Show up. Your son's name.